Would you all bow your heads and join me in praying? Uh, we're going to pray this morning for businesses on the northwest side of town. Father God, we love you. God, and we're grateful for this amazing community that you've brought us to here on the northwest side of Indy. We're grateful, Lord, that there are businesses here, that people are investing here. People are creating jobs here on the northwest side. I pray, God, that as that activity happens, as people invest and create jobs here, that it would be done with justice and with equity, that the people that work in and lead the companies here on the northwest side of town would not be afraid to live where they work and to play where they work and to invest where they work. That the folks that live in these communities that these uh, businesses are in would benefit from the businesses being here. As the businesses succeed, I pray that the community would also be lifted up, Lord. God, I pray that you would continue to bring Christian men and women into the businesses on the northwest side. And that you would make us bold to do business well and to do business in a way that honors you and respects and loves people and includes and empowers people. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to invite Tom to come up and bring the word this morning. Uh, those of you who don't know Tom, Tom and his wife Tara have become fast family members here at Soma. Uh, I think the maybe their second Sunday or something, Tom was grilling at one of our cookouts. They've just been a really special part of our MC, so I'm happy to have Tom bring the word for us this morning. Thank you, Andrew. Um, first of all, again, my name is Tom McClellan. I'm a covenant member here at Soma Northwest. Um, let me first start off by thanking Bobby and the other pastors for letting me uh, preach the word uh, today. This is a real joy and a real honor to be able to dive into the word and share the gospel uh, with our family. And so, uh, thank you that I have this privilege to do this. And um, yeah, let me, let me first start off with a bit of a recap. Let's, let's see where we've been so far. Um, we have... Hi, everyone. Uh, we have uh, hung out in uh, Matthew uh, chapters 5 to 7. Um, and uh, we just actually finished... That sermon series. And in that, we looked at Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, um, where he talked about a lot of really great things that we were able to parse apart um, over the course of a couple of months. Well, we just finished that and we spent, oh, a month or so looking at Jesus' last sermon, uh, what we might call the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. And this is between John 13 through 17. And uh, it's, it's been a real privilege and joy to just look at all of these chunks of where just Jesus really shows his heart for his, his beloved disciples. And he starts off the sermon with washing 
the feet of his disciples by taking on the role of a servant and washing the feet of not only his faithful disciples, but also the man who he would know would, would, would betray him, Judas. And not only was he going to betray him, but he was going to betray him that night. Um, for as long as I've been a Christian, that passage alone, John 13, um, has been one of the most visual and visceral demonstrations of God's love for us. That he is willing to wash the feet of the people who would just as soon as betray him and spit in his face. Um, that is really a beautiful, powerful passage. After that, we looked at the Last Supper, and we saw the establishment of the communion or Lord's Supper, Eucharist, if you are going in that direction. Um, and then after that, we saw last week how Bobby preached on us being part of the true vine, that Jesus is the vine, and we are all attached to him as little branches. And it's only through being attached to the vine that we are able to produce really delicious fruit. Mm, such good passages. And then we land on mine, where we find out that all these great things are happening, but the world hates you. I, thanks, Bobby. Um, so basically, uh, we are going to see a bit of a warning. Jesus is going to pause from his sermon and warn us, this is great, but just so you know, there's a reality here. The world is going to push back. Um, you are going to see that people will be aggressive or uh, just alienating because you are a believer. And um, that is our passage for today. Um, and we see that this is a necessary warning because this is a reality that we are living in um, on a daily basis. Um, we see in uh, John 15... Verses 18 to 16, uh, verse 4. That's our passage for today. Um, in the blue Bibles or white Bibles, it will be found on page something. Uh, any? Five, uh, yeah, 526. So I'll go ahead and flip there. Let me go ahead and read it for us, uh, the whole thing. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say, said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they, would also, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but they would have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling Away. 
they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So, let's look at what that is saying. We see, first off, that this is basically a passage reiterating over and over again that the world is going to hate us. That's a bit of a downer. So let's, let's take a step back from the emotional side of it and really kind of focus in on what we are actually reading here. And this is really the big point that I want us to drive home and maybe walk away with today. And it's, we must endure the world while we enjoy the Lord. Let me say it again. We must endure the world while we enjoy the Lord. But how does one endure the world? What does it mean to endure the world? I think, first of all, we need to figure out what, what John is meaning by the world. Is this a passage about global warming? Uh, maybe this is a passage about some sort of environmentalism. Hug trees. That's, that's what this passage is about. No, that's not what this is talking about. What John means in every bit of writing that he writes, he means by the world, he's talking about every human being on this planet. So we, we could maybe translate this a little bit different to where everyone will hate you. Is that better? <laughs> um, the idea here is that he's not talking about the physical world, but simply the world that Jesus came into the world of our brokenness and our wickedness, how we interact with each other and therefore how we interact with God. This is the world that John is talking about here. And why on earth is he going to hate us or the world? Why is it going to hate us? And specifically, why is it going to hate Jesus? And the reason for that is because the world at its core is wicked. It's evil. It's broken. And we know that because you could actually go right over to the first page of the Bible. If you open up your blue Bible, you could see Genesis 1. God created this, this, and this of the universe, and it was good. Awesome. Page 2. Genesis 2. God created man, and it was wonderful. Oh, this is going to be a great book. Genesis 3. Sin, brokenness. You're kicked out of the garden. Pain and childbirth. Nothing you make will last and we're off to the races. We don't even make it through three chapters of the Bible before we demonstrate our brokenness and our wickedness. Before we are literally kicked out of the Garden of Eden and are separated from God. This is the brokenness that we see. Now you might be like, well, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Watch a half hour of news. Pick, pick your channel, Fox or CNN. It's both going to show you that the world is terrible. But the reality is, is that this wickedness goes even deeper than what we might hear on NPR. This wickedness goes not between hatred of man versus man, but hatred of man versus their creator. Where we hate God. We see um, that this separation that we might glimpse in on uh, Genesis 3, 
where they are kicked out of the garden. It's not simply a separation physically, where we are now apathetic in our relationship, where we are distant from God. Yeah, I kind of knew him. We're Facebook friends, but, you know, whatever. Um, It's not that. It is that we are actually enemies of God. We see in Romans 5 that for a while we were enemies, that we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved in his life. First of all, it starts off, we are enemies of God. There is no apathy here. This is strict opposition. And this hatred is pointed towards God. We actually see in verse 25 of our passage today, and it's actually quoting Psalm 69, where it says, More in the number of my hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. We don't really have much of a cause to hate God, but we are just automatically in opposition to our Lord. There's really no reason why we would hate God. He created us. He loves us unconditionally. He gave us everything we need, except for one, that sin, that decision to rebel and push against God. And it's because of our sin that we are made wicked and enemies of God, that we are, set our, that we are setting ourselves against our Lord. So why does the world hate God? And specifically in this passage, why does the world hate Jesus? Well, we see in our passage that on verse 20, 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. They would have no excuse for their sin. Jesus came and revealed the depths of their sin. And that ruffled some feathers. Before Jesus came, does that mean that we were free to sin and just like, no big deal, do whatever you want, you know what? No. But Jesus basically came in and was just like, just so you know, what you're doing is sinful. Just so you know, that's pointing to death. Um, you're wicked. You're wicked. You're wicked. Look under your chair. You're wicked. You know, like it's, it's very, very obvious that Jesus is condemning those around him. We were blissful in our ignorance about our sin. And Jesus came and just opened some wounds to show us how truly depraved we are. And that could go two directions. Either you could be a like you could be a disciple where you are humbled by this, realize you're right. This is a path for death and destruction. Thank you Jesus. This is thanks for the FYI. What do I need to do to be saved? And then actually humbly follow our Lord. Or you could go the route of where more people go, sadly, which is where they lash out and hate Jesus for calling them out on their wickedness. The world ends up hating Jesus because he is calling them out on their wickedness and their sinfulness. And because of this, the world began to hate Jesus. This was actually all part of the plan. We actually see in John 1 where he says, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, has, or was coming into the world, and he 
was the the light. Oops. Uh, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people, but they did not receive him. Jesus came and he shined his glorious light, his marvelous light, his relationship with God the Father. And this dark world scattered, rejected him, pushed back. They didn't enjoy what's going on. John has a very interesting way of writing in all of his uh, books. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation, where he shows the difference between light and light. And darkness. This isn't just daylight and nighttime, but he actually has this imagery go throughout this entire book showing that if you're in darkness, you're actually in spiritual darkness, that you're separated from God. Nicodemus in chapter 3 came in from the night to talk to Jesus. Judas left Jesus into the darkness. John uses this imagery of light where if you go into darkness, you are pushing back. You are leaving the relationship of God. You are hating Jesus. Now, here's the kicker. It's easy to be like, well, everyone hates us. We're Christians. The world hates us. And kind of almost set ourselves apart to where we are maybe a little bit more elite or better than them. But here's the kicker. We were all part of this world. We were all in the thicket of this darkness. There's nothing special that brought us into this light. There's no reason that we deserve this wonderful light. There's nothing that we could do to earn God's favor. There's no spelling bee that we mastered. There's no triathlon that we got first place in. There's nothing that brought us into Christ's light. We we're on the same level as the rest of the world. We actually see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul continues his little speech where he says, or do, not know, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We were all in that path. We were all in the darkness, enjoying our sin. And God came in and pulled us out and saved us, not out of any awesomeness of ourselves. As Andrew said, we are not awesome. But we were pulled out of the darkness and grafted into the true vine of Christ. This is getting a little theological, so let's, let's back up. I'm pretty sure most of us in this room have seen Star Wars Episode 7. And if you haven't, right after church, go watch it. In Star Wars Episode 7, Finn was a stormtrooper. 
He was on the evil side. And he defected and broke out of that uh, Star Destroyer and actually ended up joining the resistance and fighting against the First Order, which is uh, the bad guys in this one. If you're like, I hate Star Wars, then just bear with me on this one. Here's why I'm talking about Star Wars right now. If you watch the entire movie, you'll see that the stormtroopers now hate Finn. He betrayed them. He left them. He turned away from the First Order and actually is fighting against them. He's on the light side, and everyone on the dark side, on the First Order, they are, they're hating Finn. They want to kill him, and they actually try to do so a lot. This is what's going on with us. We were all, in a sense, stormtroopers, doing our own thing for the sake of the dark side. Right? We're connecting the Star Wars dots here. And God pulled us out to where we were able to be on the resistance side, the good side. The reality, though, is that our stormtrooper friends hate us now because we turned away from them. We left them. And the reason for that is because the world simply loves its own. If we think back to the dark ages of our high school lives, and we think of what it was like to be in the cafeteria during lunch period, or, you know, just that, maybe you've blocked it from your memory. Um, if you were to look around, you would see that everyone's just kind of sitting around their own kind. Like the total nerds are like d and ding it up over there. And the cool kids are like makeup or whatever they're talking about. And um, they all just kind of form cliques and are really around people that are like their own. And if you're like one of those guys like, hi, I just left the D&D table. I would love to hang out with you cool kids. <laughs> what would be the reaction there? They would be like, no, you're on the wrong table. That's your group over there. Why? Because we group together. We love to be around people that we can be ourselves with. We love to be our own kind here. And if you're different, you automatically are ostracized. You're automatically pushed away. This is the massive scale of high school for us, where if you are different from the rest of the world, they want nothing to do with you. They hate you. They push back, and they really don't enjoy us anymore. So the world, sadly, will hate us Christians too, which we actually see in chapter, or chapter 15, uh, verse 18, our part of our passage today, where it says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Is this out of left field? Like, I feel like I'm an okay guy. Why? That, that doesn't seem very fair. They don't even know me. Why would they hate me? Well, the reality is, is we are now looking like and affiliated with Jesus. So there's really two ways that you could look at how the world might hate us Christians. First of all, we could simply be associated with Jesus. If you say, hi, I'm a Christian, people will automatically maybe dislike you because you're associated to Jesus, because you're linked to Christ. Moreover, the world might hate you because of when you're in a relationship with Jesus, you start to look more and more like Jesus. This is something called sanctification. 
where we are in relationship with God to the point of where we start to form our hearts around what God's heart looks like. We start to love the things that God loves. We start to live our lives the way God would want us to live our lives. And the more we are in that relationship with God, our actions and our our desires look more and more like Christ's. And so it's very easy for the world to hate you because you simply don't like the things that they like anymore. Or you don't find their sinful desires to be entertaining or okay. So what does this mean for us if we are Christians? If we follow Christ, then we naturally start to begin to look like Christ. We should therefore act less and less like the world and act more and more like Jesus. We need to establish a discipline to where we follow Christ's desires and actions. Let me be the first one to say that I am bad at this. I was actually talking to my MC this past week about how I'm bad at this. How I am naturally, right now, incredibly distracted. How I have a job that I'm thinking about all the time or planning for. How I'm on a daily basis going and spending hours where I'm not even thinking about God because I have to think about something in my career or in a relationship that I'm trying to establish or whatever. And then I come home and I have a wife and a newborn that I'm thinking about and trying to take care of and love and be around. And then, oh, we got to think about dinner. And then, well, we should probably put her down so that she can sleep and not wake us up every hour tonight. Okay, well, you know, now I'm exhausted. Why don't we watch some great British bake-off? You know, like it turns into where I'm just naturally not following Christ. I'm not even thinking about God most of the day because I am super distracted in how I interact with God. The world is winning in my attention span right now. Now, is caring for my family or trying to be a good employee a sin? No, not at all. It's good to have these. It's good to steward your money well. It's good to be a good family member, a good father, a good wife. But not at the expense of your relationship with Christ. Turning away from the world simply seems super hard. Being hated by the world seems incredibly daunting. So how on earth can we endure How do we endure? How do we do this? Well, we see at the end of this passage that we have a helper that's coming and actually helping us out with this. So what happens when what we do uh, gets pushed away, where we no longer have friends who want to spend time with us, or we can no longer do that sinful act because... Our conviction is telling us we probably shouldn't do that sort of thing anymore. Maybe we feel like we can't tell people that we're Christian because they're automatically going to start thinking of us in a specific way. There was one time where I was at a birthday party in Phoenix filled with a bunch of liberal arts people. 
I can say that because I was a liberal arts person. And they asked, like, small talk, hey, so what do you do? And I'm like, I'm in seminary. And they literally did this. <laughs> they turned around and walked away. They didn't say, like, cool, yeah, all right. I need to get some punch. No, they, they cut that conversation off at the beginning. They literally did not want to talk to me. So what if we have those kind of conversations, those relationships? What if we don't want to be that guy where everyone just kind of thinks we're a weirdo? What happens when we start to realize that because we're Christian, we have things consuming our daily lives and we're realizing we're not actually interacting with God all that much? Like me, where I'm super distracted right now. What if we have specific sin that we're not ready to let go of? Like, honestly, probably all of us. Where we're not ready to let go of that addiction or that sin. Or, it's okay, it's just like white lies, it's not a real lie. Or, it's okay, we're, we're joking around, so it's not actually gossip. Or, it's okay, it's, you know, kind of a raunchy movie but it's not technically pornography or whatever. Or we start to justify our sins. What happens when we want to lean into the world? This is where our helper comes in. Our helper is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells within this. Now, what does that mean? It sounds like something you would hear in a church. The Holy Spirit's dwelling within you. But what does that really mean? That means that um, the Holy Spirit, one of his roles is to be in us and convict us of our sins. Similar to what Jesus was doing when he was here in the flesh. Where he's telling people, no, that is bad. No, that is going to lead you to hell. No, that is breaking a relationship with God the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing from here on out. And he's dwelling within us. Which means he's with us every second of the day. Where he's with us, telling us what you're doing is sinful. What you're doing is not honoring God. What you're doing is harmful for you spiritually, maybe even physically. He's there helping us, pull us in the right direction. And the reason why he's calling us out on our sin is not to make us feel bad. It's to convict us to what's called repent. To turn away from our sin. To apologize for our actions and strive after God to attempt to no longer do that specific sin. Holy Spirit is in there helping us pull us like closer to Christ. His role in dwelling in us is to not make us sin less, but to look like Christ more. That's his goal, is to pull us into the fold, pull us into that light so that we look more and more like Jesus. Because we all have a tendency to want to run back to the world. We're saturated in it. It's so easy to start to forget about your Christian reality. Or maybe box it up. Yeah, yeah I'm a Christian, but also I'm a web developer. That's really my true identity. I'm a web developer. I'm not a Christian. Or like, oh, I'll be a Christian, but I'm not going to tell anyone I'm a Christian. Or I'm not going to live so that people know that I'm a Christian. And if someone asks, I can be like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, whatever. We want to have that tendency. So the Holy Spirit is there pulling us back. No, 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 no. This way, this way, this way. So that we naturally want to lean more into the light. 
So why is this worth the trouble? Why is it worth turning away from some friends or stopping some things that are fun to do? Why is it worth turning away from a culture or friends or potentially even a livelihood that you're saturated in? It's so that we can have an intimate relationship with God. Remember, he chose us out of this bunch to have a relationship with us. We were no different than everyone else in this world. And he pulled us into this marvelous light, not out of anything that we were able to do on our own, so that we could have a relationship, so that we could be loved unconditionally, so we could be loved without having to prove ourselves, without having to wonder, are you going to cheat on me? Are you going to leave me? Are you going to break my heart? Are you going to defriend me on Facebook? We have a God who will do none of that, who will love us more than we know that we ought to be loved, who will love us more than we feel we ought to worth because we have a God who knows us intimately. We see in 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. He's doing all the work here for us. He's loving us first. He's pulling us into the light. He's using the Holy Spirit to bring us into the fold so that we can learn to love him more. He's convicting of us of our sin. He's convicting us of our sin and then forgiving us when we actually do sin. He's doing all of the work so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could be loved in ways that we've never known love before. Notice we are talking about the Holy Spirit here, which we don't actually talk about a whole lot. He is actually one of the three members of the Trinity. He is God. He's not just like a fancy angel or something like that. No, he's God himself. And his role is to point us to Christ, to Jesus, whose role is then to point us to God the Father, who's the one who gave us the Holy Spirit. Are we noticing a circle here? of where the Holy Spirit is pointing us to Christ, who's pointing us to the Father who gave us the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. The Trinity is in work in our lives here to where the whole reason for this is to show us what a relationship with God ought to look like. Now, I feel like the Trinity is an obscure concept also. So let's pause and talk about that for a second. We believe that there is one God. We see that in Deuteronomy 6. But that one God has three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So even in God himself, he is displaying what a perfect relationship ought to look like because he's living that out between those three persons of himself. And the most important thing to know about the Trinity is that He's using that to have a relationship with us. Look at what our perfect relationship looks like. We are offering that freely to you so that you can have a perfect relationship with us. Like I said, I am very distracted from God lately. But a way to keep our attention on the Lord and enjoy a relationship with him is to remember the Trinity. And a really great practical way to do that is here in the church. To have each other remind ourselves how to bear fruit. This is another thing we talked about in our MC this past week of like, what do we do practically to pull each other into God? Because we're so distracted lately. How do we, on, how on earth do we demonstrate our love with Christ? How on earth do we bear fruit? 
The church is, or at least ought to be, designed to help each other create, renew, reestablish, rekindle a relationship with our Lord so that we can enjoy that wonderful love that he so freely gives us. And what is it like to have that relationship with Jesus? Well, we actually can see that in the passage right above ours. Verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And we see that come to full fruition in the end of our Bible. Chapter 21 of Revelation, the second to the last chapter of the entire Bible, we see, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In light of this, how should we align our hearts and our lives to this passage? Should we just walk away going like, so the world's going to hate me, great, I'm going to be on the defensive from now on. No, probably shouldn't do that. I think, first of all, we need to have humility. We need to remember that we are not superior to our friends and our families who are unbelievers. We did not earn this salvation. In fact, we see a hint of this in verse 20 of our passage where he says, A servant is not greater than the master. We must remember that we were in the bunch. We were also in the darkness of this world. So we can't boast on any merit of being a Christian. There's nothing that we have deserved to get this relationship. We actually see in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is a, this is not by your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of your work so that no one may boast. Therefore, when we interact with people of this world, when we interact with family members or friends or coworkers or whomever, we need, to we need to remember that we were once in their shoes, that we enjoy the Lord, not by our own doing, but because he simply loves us. Not because we're awesome, but because he's awesome. And so if they start making fun of Christianity, if they start making fun of you because of Christianity, we need to remember that we were once like them. And a hard reality also, that we are very often still like them, where we are quick to th 
throw Jesus under the bus to save face. Second, we need to lean into the help of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that we can do on our own. You can't just cold turkey be like, all right, world, I'm done. Christianity, perfection, here I come. You can't do that. We're naturally going to want to go the route of sinfulness. So we need to lean into the Holy Spirit. We need to ask for forgiveness of our sin. We see in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we continuing to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't simply be like, ticket to heaven or fire insurance or another cliche it's because that we, so that we can just like live our lives but still call ourselves a Christian and know that we're going to go to heaven and we're, all's good. No. We need to form a discipline. We need to use the Holy Spirit to pull us to create a distaste for our sin. We cannot expect to maintain a pure relationship with a perfect God because we are simply imperfect. So we need the Holy Spirit to constantly tell us where we need to improve and constantly encourage us so that we can continue to strive after Christ. And third, we must not react in kind. This, remember, is a warning passage. Just so you know, if you're a Christian, if you're faithful, the world is going to hate you. We must not hate them back. We must not be like, you hurt my feelings, so you're a jerk, or anything like that. We need to take the high road. We are called to love, not to hate. Luke 6 says, if you love those who love you, what benefits is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who you do not expect to receive, what credit is, or if you lend to those who you do expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Since we have no stakes in saving ourselves, so since this is entirely the act of our Lord, we need to remember that it is through grace that we are saved. So therefore, we ought to give grace to those around us. We should not expect unsaved people to automatically treat us politely. Now, does that mean an unbeliever is just like a terrible person? No, they can be perfectly nice, wonderful to be around, super kind. But what this does mean is if you do come across opposition, do not automatically turn and react with the same kind of opposition. Show them the love, not the judgment that comes from Christ. And in conclusion, I want us to remember this. We are no longer of this world. We are hashtag not of this world. 
but we are still in this world. And that's actually on purpose. At the end of this sermon series, we're going to see in John 17 a prayer that Jesus has with his father. And at the end of the prayer, he says, O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, his disciples, know you, know that you sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Becoming a Christian does not mean that you automatically get sucked into the sky and get to enjoy an eternity of perfect heaven. It means that we must first live in this world as Christians. We must endure this world for the sake of Jesus. And the struggles of this world, the struggles that we have as people, similar to the struggles of the person that Tamise talked about earlier. Those are real struggles. Each of us are going to have hardships in our lives. Some of us might be going through hardships right now. That's a reality. But the biggest struggle that we have to endure is the struggle with sin and the true enemy of God, Satan. This is honestly not a battle between Christians and non-Christians. This is a battle between light and dark, and we are caught up in the middle of it. And we need to first of all realize that our sin is incredibly dangerous. Don't justify it. And our true enemy is one unseen. Endure this world and always be on your guard. Let me close with a passage in James 4 where it says, Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you that um, we are able to read these words and from it glean some hope and some love that we are able to enjoy from you. God, I ask that uh, this message does not fall on deaf ears, but that we are all able to feel the weight of our world, worldly, worldliness and to feel the conviction of how we need to strive after you, how we desperately need your relationship. Holy Spirit, we ask that you convict us of our sin and encourage us to continually go after you. And Lord, we thank you that we have the ability to do so. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I ask that you bless the rest of their day and week and allow them to enjoy your wonderful relationship and to become a light and a beacon in their world. Thank you again for everything, and above all, Lord, thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.